Hello there, and welcome to this fourth episode of Washed Up. Hello, Follow Gang. Follow Gang was there, just as I asked. You shared, you listened, you did all I could ever hope for you. So thank you so much, yet again, for the incredible support we had for the last episode. This week is part two of my conversation with Kev Windsor, a.k.a. DJ Louie Louie. Obviously, it goes without saying, if you haven't listened to the first episode, or the first half of this episode, then you should definitely go and do that, or this will be mighty confusing. A quick update for those who have rejoined us. Kev started off in several bands, worked his way up into being part of the Riot Girl Band Persecution Complex, and then went on to be in the BBC and did several other really interesting things along the way. We join now just as we start to chat about his time at the BBC and go on to talk about DJing Glastonbury and Dolly Parton and David Guetta and everyone in between. So I think it's a fantastic episode. And I really, really love this episode. I found it a joy to edit and I think it was the perfect blend of everything I wanted this podcast to be. Obviously, as a non-American podcaster from the UK who really has no impact on the wider world, there's not a lot I can do for the friends and family of George Floyd and all I can do is support the peaceful protests and the voice across the nation and worldwide that has come out in support of George Floyd and of the Black Lives Matter campaign and that's all I can really say on the matter and I'm just so sorry that that terrible event happened. Other than that, enjoy the show. And then you kind of move from that and then you actually managed to land yourself a role with the BBC, a freelance gig. How did that come about? Uh, well, initially through a training scheme run by CSV Media. I'd also started an MA in visual culture at that point. Once again, thinking, I don't want to be involved in bands ever again or music ever again. Even though I was writing for the listings, Event Southwest and Scene Magazine, they were quite important print publications at that point. Once again, even though it was the late 90s, we're still talking pre-internet and pre um, democratization of information you know what I mean so these were very important publications that used to come out once a month and people would you know be interested and were influenced by what was written in them and it was quite a hardy team of people who used to run these magazines that's another whole story I mean because that scene magazine in Plymouth certainly was a kickoff point for a lot of uh, musicians yeah musicians I suppose but also journalists people went on to write for NME and Vice magazine and you know all kinds of things and it was important those kind of print publications really important I know everybody seems to be a blogger these days but it still doesn't seem to have the weight of ink on paper that that used to have you know what I mean um but it's that's another talk about you know democratization of information what have you so yes got into the training scheme turned out to be quite good at this radio lark which didn't surprise me really because I was always interested in media I used to sort of, you know, do radio skits and radio programs on the old cassette machines as well. And obviously doing cultural study, I was all over it, you know, media, media, art, that was, that was me 
so they started offering me regular work, regular kind of freelance, casual, part-time, whenever they needed some kind of work. And then I ended up getting a staff job. Yeah, started that. And then I became a producer for their flagship mid-morning program. So I was still very involved in music, though, because obviously it's radio, and I forget what the proportions are now. BBC has to be a certain percentage, you know, it was music. So I was involved with promoting music and I took it upon myself to kind of start booking in more live music into our studio, such as we could. You know, it wasn't made avail. I didn't think I was a, some sort of John Peel character by any stretch, but people did acknowledge we're kind of quite early giving people like Seth Lakeman, sort of folk star, kind of some decent radio coverage that they could then, you know, use for onward going publishing what have you and it was nice to be in that position of being seen there's a kind of a turnaround weirdly because musicians would be looking at me or ringing me up on record companies would be ringing me up as a producer of a radio show say oh can you give these guys a plug or can you give these guys an airing and it was like oh hang on this is this is real reversal of rose from a few years ago you know so it was um that was another little head spinner because we were, it was a very popular program i think it was like the fifth most popular BBC radio program in, in the country that for quite a while in the mid-noughties and that, that became my life. You know, I had no interest in being in a band then. I picked up on the DJing quite a lot then as well, which then led on to a, another musical adventure in my DJing a bit more. But yeah, no, BBC, I was with BBC, oh gosh, 15 years, I think. And how, like you said, you know, you've got people emailing in or messaging you or phoning you you know to ask you to plug their band or a band that they're managing how do you possibly take the weight of all of these kind of people asking you for something and you can only give a certain amount plug you can only give certain amount a live session did that kind of feel stressful having that level of responsibility and listening and thinking you know am i going to give these people their break or, or maybe i don't think they're ready gosh that's a good one Short answer is no, didn't feel that responsibility. It was always nice to think that you could. Once again, we're back to the two-edged sword again, because I, I think there's a certain, I knew it from my experience on the other side, if you like, of knowing that, oh, you know, radio producers, record companies, oh, they're all cynical. It's not what you know, it's who you know kind of thing. And I suspect there's an awful lot of that, which is also assumed still by musicians, what have you. And, hey, I'm not going to say a lot of it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't feel weighted down by, you know, I know John Peel used to say, oh, I used to feel terrible by not listening to a lot of tapes or something because I was afraid I was going to miss something. So I didn't feel that weight of responsibility by any stretch of the imagination. It certainly wasn't, I wasn't in that context at all. But it was a nice thing to be able to get, like, some, you know, some local band in the play. And then, as I say, when John Peel died in 2004, the BBC began their introducing initiative, which got off to a bit of a shaky start initially. It's become quite a big brand now, I know. And I was initially involved with the relaunch of that. But then I, I kind of I started, you know, we started setting up. Um, there was a guy called James. James Santa was the original kind of introducing guy down here. And we both got the gig. I think we were going to take it in turn to be on air and stuff. I don't know. But I kind of stood back because I was kind of in my 40s. And I thought, no, I don't want to be this groovy middle-aged fucker, you know. who's you know down with the kids kind of thing so I kind of stood back and he he made a real good go of it and I'm glad he did and the whole introducing brand as I say it's good I'm glad it's happening I have I have thoughts and reservations about it myself yeah it was interesting being in that whole world once again out of a a non-musical context I was 
hanging out with more famous musicians than I can, you know, and talking to and just being on a, once again, a peer level with them than I could ever have been in any band. <laughs> so this is a really interesting thought for me and I, it is something that I see a lot. You know, you said then you made a decision not to become the guy who is acting, you know, down with the kids and, and all of that. When, when they're a producer, you kind of decided to look at it from more of like a, not a professional standpoint, but say, you know, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to try and really do my job in the way that I want to do it. How do you feel about the likes of someone like Tim Westwood, who genuinely, he bought hip-hop to the UK. He was in a massive part of it, but now he's a meme. He's a, he's a joke of himself, and I, I feel bad for the guy. <laughs> that is sad, isn't it? Yeah, because you can't, you can't diss what Tim Westwood did. Like I say, going back to when I kind of hooked up on the, the whole second wave, new wave of hip hop. You know, he was big on, he was a big dog, man. And you can't, you know, you can't take that away from him. But I think there does become a point where you've got to think, oh, come on, it's, it's like it's like trying to wear fashionable clothes when you shouldn't be, kind of thing. <laughs> you know? That's not to say that you can't be passionate about stuff, but in terms of then you being some kind of public figure advocating for things, um, uh, it's a tricky one. You know, you can do anything you want at any age you want, and age shouldn't matter at all, but it kind of does as well, a little bit. I'd be more inclined to uh, listen to some, you know, younger person's advice on, you know, what they consider to be good scene music at the moment. And it's so easy to hear us old timers banging on about the old days and, Oh, so much better than ever. But actually, you know, it wasn't. There's actually still a lot of good shit happening. In some respects, you know, the punk dream has, has happened all over because if the punk dream was about being independent and making your own music and getting it out there independent of the corporations and the music business and the record industry, then it's happened. Punk has happened. What is sad about that, and I do mean this genuinely, is that the punk dream, which was kind of this idea that anyone could bubble to the surface and, you know, anyone can be promoted and they can promote themselves through social media, has unfortunately led to some of the least punk people bubbling to the surface. <laughs> well, yeah, true. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not talking necessarily just, you know, musical aesthetics, but in process, the process of what the internet and, you know, communications and uh, the various platforms and things have done now, that's quite, well, I used the word earlier, democratising of things. And that's to be applauded. And that's great. There's almost too much stuff out there, but that's, you know, where people's being creative before the internet, but you just never got to hear them. I don't know. Does it genuinely make you feel a bit sad? And I think it potentially links back into that thing of, you know, people not supporting local music, not supporting genuinely creative local music. Does it make you sad? Because it certainly makes me a bit sad. And I hate even saying it because it makes me sound like such a fucking music snob. But does it make you sad to think that we have, you know, this ability to listen to anything and, that, and, that, and it is this, like you say, it's, it's democracy. It, what needs to be heard and what wants to be heard and what people want to listen to bubbles up. I mean, you can argue that, you know, record labels have started to influence the analytical drive about what music is pushed to the surface on things like Spotify and iTunes and YouTube. But the point is, is realistically, if you've got something that you want other people to listen to, people can listen to it. And the trouble is, is people still insist on listening to twaddle. 
<laughs> nice. I think there's definitely an issue with filtering, let's say. Once again, it goes back to people like John Peel and even magazines. You know, it's kind of sad to see the death of the whole music press as a certain generation knew it. NME, Melody Maker, Select. I was seeing something online yesterday about Select magazine. So all those influencers, if you like, you had to seek them out. And so therefore you trusted them a little bit, trusted in inverted commas, a little bit more. Now it's an issue in internet culture generally, isn't it? Like, who do you trust? Everyone's now an expert or experts don't count anymore, you know. But I think certainly in terms of music, it was nice to have those filters. I suspect people still have filters, but they're probably more disparate. I know there are, you know, there's still radio stations. You still have the indie show on Radio 1 and what have you. It's very fragmented. You have your drum and bass shows. You have your indie shows. You have your rock shows. And I suppose that's a filtering of sorts. So those of you who are seeking out, you know, any particular genre, and I suppose when you're looking at national media, you, you do go to those and you, you will buy your Kerrang and you will buy what have you. So there is that kind of filtering, but it's hard to know if it's better or worse, really. Because going back to what you're saying, there's this whole other musical culture which has sprung up through the kind of Britain's Got Talent and the, the, those kind of uh, musical talent shows, if you like, which is promoting yet another sort of musical aspiration and talent isn't it and that's quite homogenized you could say so in some respect it is all different and yet in some respects it's also still the same <laughs> i often think of it as it's the lowest common denominator it's not necessarily about the things that people are most passionate about but it's about the things that the majority of people will happily listen to and that then is what bubbles to the surface because realistically if you ask anyone they'll have a deep passion for some form of music which is why I love it so much it's why I love doing the show and talking to people about you know I'd never heard of some of the you know I've ne I'd never heard of the Romo movement and now I do and I find that really interesting but if you took a poll of everyone we knew there would be a kind of a lowest common denominator of music that would be kind of homogenous an okay-ish that therefore is the most likely to be listened to. I guess so, but I, I guess that's always been the case, hasn't there? There's always been, you know, pop music and there's always kind of been the, the underground as well. And I suspect that still is the case, although it's all far more diffuse now, isn't it? Especially the quotes so-called underground because of platforms like, you know, Bandcamp and SoundCloud and whatever, all, all these various platforms. You've still got to do the old tricks as in the olden days to find your audience and find your market. I hate using that term market. You've still got to do all the old traditional skills in music promotion if you are aspiring to get a record deal or something. I don't really know why people would aspire to get a record deal anymore, quite frankly. But yes, you still got to put in work. You know, there's still a healthy live scene and well, <laughs> until so, until COVID nineteen, there was anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a tricky one because there will there there is you know it's hard for us musicians and creatives to realise this, but a lot of people don't actually care about subculture and you know the new band from Manchester or whatever it is. You know, they just want to hear what they've heard on Radio One Daytime, and so they can whistle whilst doing their job. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love pop music myself as well because there is like pop music out there but you know a lot of it you can sense is kind of algorithmically 
conceived of and promoted. Oh, yeah, and then you find yourself angrily enjoying something that you know has been created specifically to hit the right sort of dopamine points in your brain. Exactly, but then again, in some respects, there was probably that kind of stuff going on as well, but without the science, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure, exactly. No, you couldn't be more right, I think. Basically, I've got no real issue. I mean, I know what my interests are, and people do get to their you know where they are within the parent culture and the subculture and they find people do find their levels but i think there is still that tension between i hate using the word mainstream culture but you know there's wider popular culture and then there are various other subcultural things going on and it goes back to my degree it's it's not that straightforward my final dissertation at college was it was about 90s music and it, it posited the question whatever happened to subculture and it's kind of there, but it's kind of framed and written about and talked about in a different way to how the original kind of subcultures like your mods and your rockers and your punks and what have you, it's kind of seen in a different way. And it's quite interesting that you kind of, you know, there's still young people now who like dress up in classic old 70s punk gear. I'm thinking, well, you've kind of missed the point here, folks. <laughs> Punk's not a haircut, you know. And so there's still all these debates that are going on, but the, the whole stage is different. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I was going to sort of move back on or move forward a little bit in your career. Career, I like that word. <laughs> it sounds planned. Well, you know, your, your life in music, which maybe we should say, because you kind of, you went from, you were on the BBC, you were a big part of the BBC. I was a life. radio personality, darling. <laughs> exactly. You were, you know, you were, you were a radio, you were a personality. And then at the same time, you did a lot more DJing as DJ Louie Louie, who is, a, you know, it's kind of your personality on stage as a DJ. And you kind of started doing stuff like The Cavern, which I don't know, we, I, there are some people listening to it who aren't from the Southwest. And for those who don't know what The Cavern is, you know, it's one of the most prestigious gigs you can get in the Southwest. And to be honest, with you, I would argue nationwide, really, it is, it's just an amazing venue. And it needs your support at the moment. I think there's a fundraising campaign online for it, because obviously, like a lot of live venues around the country at the moment, they're all suffering. Yeah. And it's sad. I mean, I know it's the one that everyone talks about, but stuff like Magic Hat Stand is a game changer. Yeah, I mean, the cavern was, and still is, a little shining light to what's happening in the rest of the country, certainly for Exeter, because when the cavern opened, early 90s, I think, and they seemed to get a lot of bands. You could go and see, like, Muse, and, or even Coldplay at the cavern, you know, on a fairly regular basis, because, like, they were, quotes local bands, you know? And they were really good. Like, there's another another club in, in Bath called Moulds Club, which is on a similar circuit. And you could quite often see bands that were kind of on the way up, if you like. Royal Blood, I remember seeing at the Cavern like, a couple of years ago. Actually, well, that's another story. I won't go into that one. <laughs> well, now we have to know. <laughs> now, me accidentally singing with Royal Blood. That's a, a, an amusing story. <laughs> Touring with another band. But venues like that are still hyper-important because they do connect the audience with something they might have heard on the Radio 1 Indie show or something, you know? So, yes, support them. No, for sure. And I will definitely put a link to that in the description of this show. But yeah, it's just something that's also very close to my heart, so I'm really glad you brought that up because they do need the support. Right now. And I know it's hard because everyone needs the support, but stuff like The Cavern, who really, it, like you say, it's a shining light for a lot of people who 
And also, I'm not even funny, if you, you know, you're in Devon and maybe you don't work in a job that allows you to travel very much or you don't have the money to travel very much, for some people it's the only way they're going to be able to see really new and up-and-coming live bands. So I think that is really important. Absolutely, yeah, because the wider circuit has contracted somewhat a little. Certainly, I know in Plymouth there's a place like the Junction and the Underground and they've been really fighting the good fight in the last few years. It's kind of almost returned to what we used to rail against about, you know, supporting your local music scene. There weren't the venues, and it seemingly got to the point that there aren't the venues again for certain strata of bands and performers. I've always DJed, and, like, I remember doing, like, a <laughs> club night as a, well, club afternoon, Sunday afternoon with, you know, in a friend's shed, you know, with my cassette recorder playing tunes, and we'd buy sweets and what have you. And I've always DJed. I think that's my brother's influence. He was a local jock. And used to DJ at uni, rocking house parties in North London, you know, hip hop, acid house, what have you. Yeah, I've all always DJed, but I've never, I, once again, I didn't really set out to become a superstar DJ or anything. I'm still not, but I've definitely, I've been very lucky to get some really nice gigs and probably it's filled that hole in validation much more <laughs> than, than any band has, I suppose, in some respects. And do you think that that kind of, you know, your big gig or one of your big gigs, which is becoming a mainstay at Glastonbury, do you think that was kind of the way that that was destined to go? Did that feel like something that you'd been leading up to for a while and it really felt like a kind of, oh, this is where I should be? Yeah, in some respects. It's not pyramid stage stuff at all, but it's fantastic. I've, well, I've been a resident there for 10 years now, I think, in the naughty corner, as it's called, Shangri-La. And specifically, Deluxe Diner. Hello, everybody in the Deluxe Diner crew. We're all bitterly disappointed that we can't be there this June. But, yeah, for sure, you know, because if you know you're quite good at something and you're not getting necessarily that validation, as I say, <laughs> you know, playing down your local pub, then, you know, being framed in that context of being a Glastonbury DJ is a very gratifying thing, obviously. I don't DJ for that kind of egotistical thing it's like hey i'm playing this music i really like it i hope you like it too let's all have a fucking good time together that's my kind of approach i'm not fucking you know david getter or anything i know <laughs> don't, don't expect that kind of adoration you know and i'm, I'm actually that's probably if we're going to talk psychology again that's probably one of the things that that has prevented any musical projects i've been involved with from progressing because i do have a terrible imposter syndrome when it comes to you know suddenly realizing you're at a certain level of operation you suddenly think well hang on i'm just this country boy brought up a wooden house and down what the hell am i doing what am i doing hanging out with paul mccartney and it kind of it's like a defense thing it kicks in which is actually very grounding and very good because it means you're not going to get carried away and become david getter everybody's worst nightmare <laughs> Waking up one day and realising, oh shit, I'm David Guetta. What a terrible thing. I love it. And it's become very important. I did a stream just yesterday for the collective. Old, old Man's Corner is a call. I think it's for DJs. Anybody over 30 is considered old man these days. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I've been doing a lot of the festival circuit. I ran a really uh, popular vintage, as it was called then. I kind of hit this kind of totally unplanned. I just happened to love a lot of the old jump blues rockabilly that kind of stuff it was all kind of punk rock to me certainly a lot of the sun recordings were punk rock they really did just set up in a studio with a tape machine and gather around one microphone and did a couple of takes and that was it so i love all that stuff and i started sharing my love of this stuff at the bike shed theater in exeter 
and it became a really quite popular club night, you know, queues on the block, that kind of thing. And yeah, and so that's been really rewarding, fulfilling and fun. And it's kind of spilt onto all kinds of other things, various festivals and some nice prestigious gigs. I've been playing on Plymouth Ho to like over 8,000 people for the America's Cup. It's like, what God. the hell? So yeah, the whole DJing thing, it's scarier because you haven't got your mates there to support you. And because of this focus on you as one person, particularly when you're on a stage, you're expected to like, thankfully I do. I like to jump around a bit. I'm one of these DJs that actually, hopefully looks like they're enjoying what they're playing. Well, I know some <laughs> of the DJs, you know what I mean though? I know so many DJs are kind of stand there and like, look, I'm tweaking this knob and it's the most important thing I could be doing today right now. So treat me with respect. You know, oh, come on, jump around a bit, mate. Enjoy what you're doing. So, yes, I have a lot of fun DJing, and I love it. And I love that whole sharing of music. My musical tastes now are pretty damn broad, and they always have been. And it's now also led on to my own experimental stuff, if you like, which I've always been into. I did electronic music at college, and that kind of introduced me to a whole new world of sound and what have you. So I do a lot of that, the Infected Senses project, which started then and kind of has been filtering along. I've become quite prolific, especially during lockdown. There's been a lot of us doing file sharing projects as well. that's been picking up some nice reviews as well once again i don't seek to quote to make it as such you know i've now got stuff out on itunes and spotify it's like wow this was the music business you know you actively be looking for like a music distributor to get out your music and there you are you can just do it you give distro kid 10 quid or something they'll do it for you and there you are you're in the music business you're on itunes next to some famous people it's brilliant i'm super glad that you brought up the infected senses project actually because it's something i was really interested to talk to you about because you know you started that project in the early 90s when you were kind of doing quite rudimentary sampling and you're using what's the kind of word you're using it's an analog way yeah it's kind of tape experimentation really a bit like the early you know pioneers and innovators back in the 50s and 60s they'd, they'd have like you know four reel-to-reel tapes and the jumping right you know john cage and whatever you'd be playing around with reel-to-reel tapes and having them playing out of sync and like, overdubbing things or whatever. And, you know, I'd muck around with like a four-track cassette machine and come with all kinds of horrible noise. I've kind of got into this kind of AI idea now. I was watching a video with Holly Herndon last night and she started out as a noise artist and now she's working with this kind of AI and that stuff. I'm kind of really interested in all that, which has then led on to this other collective, which started with a mate, Harry. 2017 called Music is Murder, where we're promoting this kind of experimental new sense of feeling of experimentation and an avant-garde-ness, if you like, in music. So that's all linked in, really. It's kind of nothing new, and yet it is new. You know what I mean? You know, I've listened to all of the soundscapes that you've got online, and they're really, really interesting. And I sat here and I thought, as I was kind of writing up this episode, I thought, how would I describe it to someone? And I think the best way I could describe it is that they do feel really kind of analog. They feel quite gritty and there's a sense that you could be playing it on a cassette. Like you say, you could have just put it in a cassette player and you could be listening to it kind of in that moment.
How do you maintain that whilst everything now is produced on the likes of GarageBand and stuff like that? Or do you still do stuff in an analogue way? Gosh, no, don't. I'm surprised to hear you say that, actually, because I'm actually quite, not disappointed, but I'm frustrated. I, I can't get that kind of gritty analogue sound. I'm gonna, I use FL Studio and Audacity. And I think because of my ear towards distortion and noise and the valid use of them in music, I suppose maybe that's what scuzzes things up a bit. I'm not afraid to make digital distortion, you know, because it's a great noise in itself. The early stuff on there, the early volumes, is definitely me learning in public. I mean, despite my interest in electronic music and being a big fan of electronic experimental stuff and having done a little bit of college, I didn't actually sit down to wrap my head around learning a door until, I don't know, maybe a few years ago. Literally, I downloaded, got the FL Studio and got my head around that, you know, and Audacity. So it's quite a recent, personally, practically, it's quite recent for me, even though I've had an interest in it, I, that's never translated into, you know, making stuff. I've done the occasional bit of stuff, like I did stuff at college, but that all kind of got lost and I couldn't afford a sampler then and certainly couldn't afford synthesizers or anything. So once again, it goes back to this democratization of both process and accessibility to music. So yeah, it's opened up different worlds again, yet again, different worlds. And it's very freeing. And this goes back to the kind of meta conversation we're having here about relationships to music industry you don't need it man yeah it'd be nice if like a small indie label gave me five grand to press up some vinyls that'd be great love it but i wouldn't want to commit to having you know a publicly perceived commodified product if you like that you have to maintain and persist with you know you hear so many popular musicians as they have interests beyond what they're popularly known for but they can't do anything like you know if coldplay tries to do quote an experimental album like their last one you know get a bit slagged off or you know gee you know what i mean though which is the whole point of the washed up conversations i think is about people's relationship to the industry and yourself as a creative and why be tied down by having to produce you know this commodified product you know i have interest in a wide selection of things i know record contract would be able to kind of contain that really and yes i wouldn't say no if somebody did say you know here's some money to do just do what you do great i'm not snobby about it but i don't as actively seek it as possibly when you did when you were younger and you were sending off demos to record companies or whatever you so it's a, it has you know it's, it's all been a game changer yeah you've you've hit the nail on the head and it's really come full circle with the kind of the point in this show is this idea that and i think you the reason i was so excited to get you on is that you really put forward the idea that necessarily the points in someone's musical career or your life in music where you are closest to it's a hard term to hit but not necessarily mainstream but kind of conventional musical success might not be the times where you feel most fulfilled by your career in music or your career in anything creative your points where you are being most you know financially driven or you're most financially given to because of what you're making might not be the points where you turn around and think oh this is why I've really made it whereas you know like you said your infected senses projects I think are fantastic but no one's giving you two grand for them well grand even but then that's ironic because like you know the Exodus City Council were very nice to give our music as murder project a small arts grant for us to put together a launch night and put together our first physical CD release so you know it's <laughs> <laughs> that's really contradictory because we make a terrible racket we're not at all 
interested in promoting you know music that's going to bring the tourist industry coming flocking to exeter you know what I mean? so the funding is out there and it comes from sometimes the most unlikeliest of sources well i thought i'd end actually by asking you some sort of quick fire questions i like to end the show on a light quick fire silly note which i know sounds ridiculous because this whole project is quite silly but sillier my first question is just completely egregious fantasy on my behalf out of all of the famous people who you've met firstly did you get to meet dolly Parton at glastonbury no oh no i did watch her and it was fantastic and you know what apparently she drew the biggest crowd in glastonbury's history even outstripping any of the kind of so-called headliners because she was on the you know the sunday afternoon vintage spot or what they call it it was brilliant loved it she was not mining. No, she's fantastic. I love Dolly. And I think the fact, to be honest with you, fact, the fact that she wasn't headlining is a travesty. But that's yeah. quite the This is a real and a real treat. Now, how many of you go so far back that you'd remember a song of mine called Jolie? <laughs> I'm not sure if it would have worked as a headline, but those Sunday afternoon spots are brilliant. And when I saw Kylie last year, it was great. Well, yeah, she dragged on Chris Martin. Well, he turns up anywhere. (laughs) But she, you know, dragged on Nick Cave as well. It was like the first time they performed that song together. Actually, I'm not sure they have actually ever performed. Was it Wild Roses, isn't it? I'm not sure they've actually performed that together live on stage ever. Yeah, no, Dolly shouldn't have been headliner. Sunday afternoon was perfect. And then, so going back to my sort of egregious celebrity lusting, out of all of the people, I'm presuming you must have met and partied with some of the greats. I'm not asking for slander here, but of the people you've met, who was the most, like, you know, true to their image, or not necessarily true to the image, but who was the most kind of rock and roll, and who was the most, not, I don't want to say disappointing, but the most boring. Wow. That's a question, isn't it? McCartney's definitely weren't rock and roll. That was pleasant evening meal with a couple of glasses of wine. Uh, <laughs> let me think now. Graham Coxon, I, I liked Graham. I think he was had all those same demons at the time because when we were kind of passing paths, he was battling his alcoholism at the time. And he didn't disappoint because he was a, a good drunk. A misunderstood drunk, because I think, as I say, he was battling all kinds of stuff because Park Live was kicking off. And then, I don't think he quite knew how to deal with it all and wasn't happy with his place in the music industry either. I remember having a couple of candid conversations about how he was just enjoying hanging out with us and Huggy Bear and, you know, fans not you know, recognising him and such. And I think then a few years after that, that's when it all kind of hit him and, you know, they broke up and all kinds of stuff. So he was good fun. I liked him and I kind of liked his integrity as well. And he's actually probably one of the greatest unsung guitarists around, actually. He's amazing. He's brilliant. Gosh, um, I don't really know. Um, disappointing. Well, a lot of them are disappointing, you know, because bizarrely, you know, there's a lot of people who might see musicians on my level as celebrities or something. You know, when I, as I say, when I was working on the radio, you'd, you'd have listeners come up to you and they'd think, you're a celebrity, they'll get your autograph, you know, sign a few autographs. But I often think, gosh, I must be incredibly disappointed. So, yes, I'm the biggest disappointment. 
Oh, my God. Fantastic. Right. What a way to end that. Deary me. Christ. Right. So before we go, before we wrap things up, I always ask sort of a joint question. It's a bit of a vague one. What are you listening to right now that you think other people should be listening to? And where can people see you once this catastrophe is all over? Gosh. Well, that's a good question. It's an open-ended question, isn't it? We're plotting with the Music as Murder crew to get one of our sessions together, possibly in September, which hopes to have a reunion of a band called Children of the Drone. We've been trying to get people like Giant Swan to come and play and Sly and the Family Drone, but they're proving a little elusive both financially and time-wise, especially Giant Swan, because that whole noise scene has kicked off in Bristol quite a lot. And, you know, it's been quite inspirational. Because there seemed to be, as I say, a couple of years ago when we started, there was this kind of new bubbling up from the underground. And we kind of vaguely got associated with this whole new weird Britain thing. Um, because some guys, Father Glitch and X1 Tab, who have been working in the underground electronica scene for quite some time, they played for us a couple of times. So, yes, we hope to pursue that a bit more and get some more product out there, man, after our first CD. I recently... Actually, literally, just yesterday, got introduced to Yacht. And this goes back to this kind of interest in moving things forward, I suppose. But I was been listening to them, and they produced their last album using AI technology. A bit like Holly Herndon. I'm a big fan of Holly Herndon. I was watching a couple of her lectures as well. Yeah, they were feeding their kind of back catalogue into some AI technology, and it fed them back their entire back catalogue in a kind of mangled way. And I really like that because I know everybody's afraid of the robots and everybody's afraid of the AI, but don't be afraid, folks, as we've still got to make them. So I like that kind of stuff. There was a band I heard on Radio 1, indie show, Trapper's Pelt is the song. can't remember the band, but somebody's taken up the mantle being Marky e. Smith. God, I must look him up. I'll message it to you. Yeah, I'll put it in the description 100%. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm still very, even though I'm an old codger, I'm still very enthused by some of the stuff I do. There's obviously a lot of disheartening stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's seemingly a new sense of unrest in the music scene. Idols, for example, they're great. You know, they're kicking up some dust. So yeah, there's this sense of unrest. It feels like a photocopy of previous movements, which I'm always dubious of. I'm always dubious of, you know, a younger generation trying to emulate something that's happened already. And it might very well have moved on and taken on board their own particular contextual issues and contributions to things. But, you know, there's still a bit of a futurist in me. I'm probably a bit more metamodern now than postmodern insofar as we've learned all the lessons of the irony and pastiche of postmodernism. But there's this little surge of, this is a modernist surge that culture and yeah, music specifically, I suppose, needs again now. You can't go back to the old rules. You can learn from them and take forward some new stuff, hopefully. Yeah, well, fantastic. And thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you. I'm sorry if I talk too much. No, you talk the perfect amount. It's a podcast. That's what we want. And I'm really grateful for you being on. And I hope we can do this again. Thank you so much. I think that's a really good place to end the show. And yeah, thank you. And I'll put all the links to anywhere you're going to be and all the artists that you've spoken about in the description of this podcast. And yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Sam. Well, there we go, my gorgeous little 
followers, my gorgeous follow gang, as I shall now call you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed making it. I say that every week, but that's just because I enjoy making it so much. I wouldn't make it else. Other than that, you know, if you know someone who might like it, send it their way. See if they want to have a listen. Even if you don't think they'd like it, send it their way anyway, because A, don't judge a book by its cover, and B, if they click on it, it gets me follows. Follow gang. But no, seriously, you know, just send it around if you think people will like it. And thanks to all the people who joined the Facebook group and followed us on Instagram. I'll put the link to the Facebook group below. It's washed up the podcast, I believe. And on Instagram, it's the washed up podcast or at the washed up podcast. And yeah, give both of those things a look. It's a good way to keep up with the app and have a chat with your fellow follow gang. And other than that, have a really good week and try not to think about Corona or all the other terrible things that are going on right now. Love you all. Bye.